I'm sorry that I'm being dead. Welcome back to another episode of Lyrics for Lunch, the show where I sometimes remember to plug in my microphone. Sometimes, but not sometimes. every time. Not every time. <laughs> One time in 74 episodes, I forget to plug in my microphone. It was a good episode. Disaster. 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 This is a show where we dive into the famous stories behind not-so-famous songs or the not-so-famous stories behind famous songs, etc., etc., I am your host, Aviv Rubenstein. Joining me this and every week is... She's just having a great one. What is that supposed to mean? She just You just look so delighted to be here. I am delighted to be here. Hello, it's me, Lindsay Tucker. Great to be here. Great to be here. <laughs> Welcome to our show. What are we talking about this week, Aviv? So last time I researched an episode, it was about a very famous song with a not-so-famous story. We I talked about... Which is the Numa Numa song um, And how it became super famous Today we're talking about the opposite A very not famous song That involves two very famous stories Okay So the song is The Commander Thinks Aloud By The Long Winters my attention thanks to the great podcast song exploder it talks about the writing and recording of songs so if you love this song i suggest you take a listen to that and uh, if you want to hear a little bit more about specifically how the drums were recorded on this song it's very cool and very interesting Shooting stars 
myself. Uh, as I mentioned in, I, I texted you during during researching this episode that researching this episode made me cry this week. So yeah. uh, we'll see. We'll talk about why in a second. Um, so the Long Winters is just one of those bands that's one guy primarily, like Weedus. Um, and the creative force songwriter singer is this guy named John Roderick. So we're going to talk a lot about John Roderick today. But not as much as you might think. So John Roderick's from Seattle. He was born in the late 60s. His mom was a computer programmer and his dad worked on an oil pipeline, which means John spent a couple of years in Alaska when he was growing up for his father's work. Armageddon vibes. Armageddon vibes. He wasn't a driller, but same, same. <laughs> Um, and then he went back to Seattle again at the age of five when his parents got divorced. In the late 90s and early 2000s, John joined the band Harvey Danger, famous for their oh. song Flagpole Sitta. And he toured with them as like a keyboard player until they went on hiatus in April of 2001. Never to be seen of again. I think that they still tour, actually. <laughs> I'm like pretty sure I've like really? seen Harvey Danger like at... You know, Great Scott music in festivals. Or yeah, oh, I right. Great Scott. Okay. <laughs> so then John formed his solo band thing called The Long Winters, which was active from 2001 until 2006. And this song that we just listened to is off of The Long Winters' second to last release, which is the EP called Ultimatum. And that was released in 2005. So what do you think this song is about? Astronauts. You're right. <laughs> so- You're right. <laughs> you, you're right. On February 1st, almost 20 years ago, tomorrow, from the time we're recording this episode, the space shuttle Columbia broke apart while re-entering Earth's atmosphere. And on February 2nd, then-President George W. Bush addressed the nation. I told you we'd talk about George W. Bush again. <laughs> it's a Bush-heavy week. I mean it's month. <laughs> Bush-heavy month. My fellow Americans... This day has brought terrible news and great sadness to our country. At 9 o'clock this morning, Mission Control in Houston lost contact with our space shuttle Columbia. A short time later, debris was seen falling from the skies above Texas. The Columbia is lost. There are no survivors. The Space Shuttle Columbia was commissioned for build in 1972, which was a year before five-year-old John Roderick returned from Alaska to Seattle. Okay, following, doing the math. Uh, And uh, it was from a company called North American Aviation, also known as North American Rockwell, which later became Rockwell International. Construction began in 1975 and was completed in 1979. It was tested for two years, and then its first flight was in 1981. How many times do we use spaceships? Like, at one point, are they this just, is, like, too old? This is what we're talking about today. Used. used. It was used. Like um, a dirty old condom. Also, also... Didn't work. We don't call them spaceships. <laughs> this is... This is... this is These are pirates. Um, shuttle? Would yeah, shuttle this be better sh- for you? This was the shuttle program, yeah. So this was a okay. space shuttle. Also, I... Just refer to it as a spacecraft. By the way, this uh, this episode is made possible with help from friend of the show, Dan Ramspacker, who works for NASA. 
Columbia was heavier than subsequent spacecraft due to build material, but also which got lighter as the years went on, and also just design, right? Like it, it was designed, and it was just a little bit heavier than than the spacecraft that we designed after that. And due to its weight, due to like its heaviness, it was like eight, I think it was eight thousand tons or something. I had I had it written down. And I think I lost it. Can you stop fat shaming the Columbia already? Well, due to its weight, Columbia couldn't have used the boosters that they had planned to use. They planned to use what's called the Centaur-G boosters, and that was what was used at the time. Um, But it was eventually in the early 80s, right? But it was eventually scrapped because that is what failed on the Challenger disaster in 1986. Right. For context, Challenger's first launch was 1983. Challenger launched a year, two years after Columbia and failed on January 28th, 1986. So it was only in, in use for about three years. Um, meanwhile, Columbia was on the road for like 22 years. Woof. Yeah. It's time to retire that baby. Well, I'm... I have some horrible news for you. <laughs> the design part of it was uh, that made it heavy was that it was one of the last space shuttles to use an internal airlock, which added to the weight. And What's an internal space- airlock? I'm telling you. So to go on spacewalks, you have to go through basically like a vestibule that can pressurize or depressurize the atmosphere so that you don't just open the door to the spacecraft and then suck all the oxygen out. And so modern spacecraft, they have one externally that's basically like kind of a tent that's built around the door, and it's light and easy and whatever. Why don't they ever Uh, show this on TV? You can see it in the movie Gravity. They have an external Mm. airlock. Um, I see that one. But Columbia had an internal airlock, and that actually allowed Columbia to be used to service things like the Hubble Space Telescope because of the way that the pieces fit together, but it was too heavy to do international space station missions. ISS launched in 1998. So Columbia would have been ideal if it just weighed a little less. We're done with fat shaming. I promise. It's about time. In a little over 21 years, Columbia flew 28 missions. So it's going on more than one a year. Yes. And it spent spent 300 and three quarters days in space, 300.75 days in space. Jesus, that's how many days of sun we have in Denver. <laughs> uh, it was. It went a total distance of a hundred and twenty-five million two hundred and four thousand nine hundred and eleven and a half miles. She's so tired. <laughs> it's that's almost to Mars and back. It's it's like thirty-five million miles short of a round trip flight to Mars. And then. And then, you ready? I'm ready. So there was a mission designated STS-107, and it was originally scheduled to launch on January 11th, 2001, but it was delayed numerous times for a variety of reasons for nearly, for over two years, right? Which is, which happens, right? Shuttles mm-hmm. get delayed from weather, from mechanical, from, you know, people are sick, whatever it is, right? So on February 1st, 2003, almost exactly 20 years ago, mission STS-107 while re-entering the atmosphere after a 16-day scientific mission, discovered, well, discovered is the wrong word, a a hole was punctured in the leading edge of one of the wings. 
and the wing was made of carbon composite, and this is what caused the failure of the spacecraft. So this is from science.org from December of 2003. What was to be a stellar year for NASA, continuing work on the International Space Station and double launches to Mars turned into a horrible supernova above Texas. On February 1st, the space shuttle Columbia disintegrated as it returned to Earth from a science mission. The tragedy left seven dead and the shuttle fleet grounded and NASA's future in question. Newly installed NASA Administrator Sean O'Keefe, a former Deputy Chief of the White House Office of Management and Budget, faced the Klieg lights of press conferences and congressional hearings to defend the agency. Meanwhile, a blue ribbon panel led by retired Admiral Harold Geeman, or Geeman, I don't know, poured over hundreds of thousands of pages of documents and testimony to understand both the technical failure and the management troubles that allowed the failure to occur. Mm, so, bad let's management. talk about what happened. Let's. It's, it's not going to get good. It's going to get really <laughs> upsetting. <laughs> so, this is, from, this is from Nova. Uh, for, uh, the Nova does like a, a day by day of what happened. Oh. So on a sky blue morning at 1039 AM, the shuttle lifts off on Columbia mission STS 107, roughly 80 seconds into the launch, a briefcase sized piece of insulating foam breaks off from a fuel tank and strikes the underside of Columbia's left wing. But the astronauts in the craft nor, neither the astronauts in the craft nor the personnel in mission control are aware of this problem. Shit. So this is ultimately what doomed the, the, the spacecraft. How long were they up? 16 days. Oh, my God. <laughs> the panel okay. concluded that a large piece of foam that struck the, under, struck the orbiter's sensitive underside during launch weakened the left wing's protective coating of tiles, allowing hot plasma to pierce the shuttle wing as it re-entered Earth's atmosphere. Even if they had noticed the small shower of debris from the wing during takeoff, it's doubtful that flight controllers would have immediately aborted the mission. In cases of engine failure or other major malfunctions during launch, they can order the shuttle to jettison its boosters and it just like glides down in an emergency landing. Mm-hmm. There are two emergency landing sites, one in Spain, one in Morocco. But this far, this problem was far less clear. And so by 11 a.m., less than, a little over 20 minutes later, the shuttle is in orbit above Earth's atmosphere. 16 days later, during the intense heat of reentry, hot gases penetrated the interior of the wing, likely compromising the hydraulic system and leading to control failure of the control surfaces and the resulting loss of control exposed minimally protected areas of the orbiter to full heat of the atmosphere. And uh, this eventually led the vehicle to break up 39 miles above earth and it was traveling oh, 23 times the speed of sound. <sighs> so do you think they like, was it just like, boom, you're dead or was there like mass chaos? I the the implication for me is like if your shuttle blows up like you're done immediately right, right? that was always like what I assumed um, okay. in the days follow this is Nova again in the days following the shocking loss reporters grilled NASA officials to learn what if anything could have been done to save the astronauts if mission managers had recognized that the shuttle the shuttle had incurred potential fatal damage during liftoff could they somehow have brought the crew home safely. 
NASA's response was Columbia and the men and women aboard were were doomed. They they were they Nothing had there was no do. way to save them. Hands are clean. And a report, right, and a report was commissioned by the Columbia Accident Investigative Board. It was like the 9-11 commission for this. And the report delved deeply into the underlying organizational instructional issues that the board believed contributed to the accident. Disturbingly, on flight day two, frame-by-frame analysis of film of the launch reveals the foam striking Columbia's left wing. What? But no one can tell the exact location or extent of the damage, so they asked for images. From who? Like a like lower level engineers asked if they could ask their superiors if images could be authorized, either via a spacewalk or by some neighboring satellite. Okay. Right. They're so just I like, just want to make sure we're clear because this is what's yeah okay. So this is coming out during the investigation that at the time they saw the photos they saw or they they saw it and they asked for more info. Yes, okay. and the Department of Defense offered to examine it with or- orbital spy cameras, and mm-hmm. higher ups within NASA opted not to press the issue. Why? They argued that if the shuttle had been damaged, nothing could be done to fix it. Was that true? Well, okay. In the report, Geeman's team discovered that mission controllers at Johnson Space Center failed to heed concerns about the foam strike raised by lower echelon NASA workers, and NASA, NASA managers vetoed a plan for any U.S. spy satellites to photograph Columbia's belly in, in orbit to survey any damages. And they said, you know, they would have died. It doesn't matter. This is from the BBC. In his personal blog, former flight director Wayne Hale, who was assigned to the Columbia mission, that the, the final Columbia mission, says that concerns about possible damage to the thermal protection system had been flagged up. He said that the decision taken by John Harpold, who is the director of mission operations, was that there was no point in telling the crew hmm. because there was nothing the Columbia's astronauts could do about it. Quote, he had spent early his early career in shuttle entry analysis. He knew more about shuttle entry than anybody. The guidance, the navigation, the flight control, the thermal environments, and how to control them. After one of the mission management team's meetings, when possible damage to the orbiter was discussed, he gave me this opinion. You know, there's nothing we can do about the damage to the TPS. If it has been damaged, it's probably better not to know. I think the crew would rather not know. Don't you think it would be better for them to have a happy, successful flight and then die unexpectedly during entry than to stay in orbit knowing there was nothing to be done until air ran out? Interesting question that I've been thinking about since you started talking about this. Yeah, I mean, it. it is a it's one of those like philosophical thought experiments, right? Like, mm-hmm. which is better? It's like you feel like you wouldn't want to know, but then if. There was a chance of but contacting then, your family. How could you, right? Like, like I might not want to know, but I also am like furious for. Yeah, it's not no really reason. his decision to make. I don't think. Yeah. Like maybe talk to the wives, the mothers, the kids, the children. Like, what if they got gotten in a fight, like, the morning that they left, and then they could have saved the rest of their lives by letting them talk to their dads again, but no. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I mean... Murph! 
Murph. Murph. <laughs> Uh, so at 9.12 a.m. on February 1st, Mission Control received phone calls informing them that a news network had video of the Columbia breaking apart. So they didn't tell anybody. And it just, this is around the time that people start having cameras. Oh. So NASA called the event a shuttle contingency. I've, I don't even remotely know what that euphemism means means sure and sent (laughs) sent out most multiple search and rescue teams to examine the debris sites which ranged from texas to arkansas to louisiana oh my god how many like miles is that 2.3 million acres of land 2.3 million acres okay 2,000 square miles spread across three states 2,000 square miles yeah fuck during the search two pilots aboard search helicopters died in a crash what mm-hmm. they just crashed they're so so the total fatality for count debris. is nine yeah nine well no they're searching for survivors survivors they are they're not sure if they're alive or dead they're not sure so so bush makes that statement that there are no survivors on february 2nd so they're still okay. looking okay um so a day later nasa declared that the crew had been lost it was actually like i think the end of that evening and bush made a speech the following day per the encyclopedia britannica pieces of the shuttle and the crew's remains were recovered over the course of the following month from more than 2,000 square miles spread across the three states in fbi reports the number of people who took part in the search and rescue mission was 25,000 25,000 people are these did, government did employees civilians yeah, volunteers both so okay. they, they scoured 2.3 acres of land looking for debris, and they, they collected roughly 40% of the shuttle's weight. They got it all back, right? Wow. Sure. Considering Less a good half. portion of that like burnt up. Blew up. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so Special Agent Gary Renicky was among a group of agent, agents tasked with handling hazardous material at a staging site in Lufkin, Texas. And upon arriving... He, re- he said, I had no idea what to expect when I got down there, and it was just swarming with astronauts. So other astronauts were, like, showing up to look for debris and showing oh, up to man. look for remains. As the search teams scoured the country, they sent reports back to the FBI for possible, like, locations of crew remains. Quote, this is Gary Renicki's quote. After we determined we had found a crew member, we documented the scene like we would a crime scene. We mapped it, mapped it out, took pictures, but in this case, we didn't keep any evidence. We just turned everything over to NASA. Because they trusted them. Because they trusted them. So months later, the Columbia Accident Investigation Board, we talked about their report, right? Yeah. They requested a team of NASA engineers take a closer look at the options that they may have had for rescue. Or just saving the astronauts, right? Mm-hmm. In some way. And the findings were different than the original assessment. While the shuttle itself was almost certainly destined for destruction, there was a chance that the crew could have survived. So Columbia had enough fuel, oxygen, and food to stay in orbit f- until February 15th. Okay. And the, the space shuttle Atlantis, the launch of that could have been moved up as early as February 10th, 
leaving a short window for either repairing the wing or getting the crew off the Columbia. This is the thing. Astronauts are really smart. And I think people, when they're faced with life or death situations, you know, like partially just give them the chance to figure it out. Yeah. I mean, we did it with Apollo 13, right? Apollo 13 is a real story of human ingenuity and survival. Yeah. But this Columbia Accident Investigation Board report was very critical of NASA's decision-making and risk assessment process. Furthermore, the board determined that unlike NASA's early claims, a rescue mission would have been possible using Atlantis, which was basically ready for launch and may have saved the the seven members of the Columbia. This is a quote from the report. Cultural traits and organizational practices detrimental to safety were allowed to develop. The board found that NASA relied too heavily on, quote, past success as a substitute for sound engineering practices and cited organizational barriers that prevented effective communication of critical safety information alongside other major issues, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So do I think that this was like a a massive NASA cover-up? Am I like a moon landing truther? No. Huge mistake, though. It was a huge mistake. And and Nova puts it well, which is that if such a mission, if Space Shuttle Atlantis had taken place, right, the, the rescue mission, each step would have had to happen like clockwork for the mission to succeed. As we mentioned earlier, spacecraft are delayed and launching for myriad reasons like if it rains you're fucked um nasa would have had to have act swiftly to recognize the threat of the debris strike formulate and execute an extraordinary plan the limited supplies of lithium hydroxide and oxygen on columbia would have made quick action imperative and perhaps most importantly nasa would have had to launch a second shuttle carrying four more astronauts without fully understanding the cause of the first debris strike hmm mm-hmm and that and that leads to the possibility that Atlantis too might suffer damage on liftoff and be crippled in space. Sure. The CAIB, the Columbia Accident Investigation Bureau, concluded that the ultimate decision to launch would most likely rest with the president, George W. Bush. Oh. The president, I mean, this is Armageddon shit. Like, the president would have to get on the phone and say, oh, get Atlantis in the air. Oh, you're saying it would have happened. This would have had to happen. If they had tried. Yes, okay. if they, if they, I don't think NASA even pushed for Atlantis to, to go up. No. I can see both sides because, like, yeah. yes, if they're not sure what happened at all, they're, we, we don't have the footage, right? I don't know don't what have the it footage. look like. Uh but yeah, taking into account that you're risking four more lives than what if all are lost? Totally, um, it's a it's a lose lose situation. It really is. So and and like once again, this is this is a tragedy, and there are definitely there were definitely some decisions made in the process that were bad. But mm-hmm. it's I'm not like one of these people that's like NASA's lying to us about whatever. This is so so there are these people. Oh, yeah, um, about everything, <laughs> not just about Columbia. <laughs> yes, but w- with Columbia specifically, is there some I don't tell us know. the truth? I didn't find any any truthers, like a, like a pocket of truthers. I think that there are just people in general who don't believe in NASA and think that every disaster that we've ever faced in space, which is two, 
is like, well, they were trying to silence somebody for saying something. It's not like 9-11 where, where there's like a whole bunch of people who think that that didn't happen or, you know, was an inside job. Inside job. Um, would NASA have pushed for Atlantis's launch and would President Bush have authorized it? Space flight is inherently risky and it's heroic and it's the American way, if not human nature itself, to try everything possible to save lives in danger. That's how the mm-hmm. Nova article ends. Um, oh. They collected 84,000 pieces of debris and they stored it in a large room on the 16th floor of the Kennedy Space Center in the Vehicle Assembly Building. Um, and it was open to the media once, like at like after. Only one time. I mean, for a period. And, oh. um, and then it was closed off and now it's only open to researchers. NASA researchers? Yeah. Maybe researchers from other space agencies. I don't know. The assumption, as I mentioned before, at least for me, was that the crew died in the initial breakup of an, or explosion of the shuttle, right? It was like instantaneous. Mm-hmm. In 2008, NASA released a crew survival report that offered insight into the crew's final moments, revealing that they likely survived the initial breakup, but quickly lost consciousness when the cabin lost pressure and they died when they were exposed to the elements when Columbia disintegrated. This review ruled that the crew may have been aware for as long as 41 seconds that they were not in control of the ship. Shit. Do you ever have dreams where you're like going down in a plane? Mm-hmm. It's the most terrifying thing. And it's just, at least for me, because I always wake myself up, but it's yeah. like, you know, it's the end. It's sheer terror. And there's literally nothing you can do. And you can't breathe. Yeah. The 400 page. <laughs> like report. I speak from experience from my yeah. dreams. But seriously, though. Yeah. It's horrible. And this is this is a real capper. Like ready? one second of it is terrifying. 41, yeah, 41 seconds. Se- 41 seconds knowing that you are, it, you are not in control of a spacecraft going 23 times the speed of sound is probably... The scariest 41 seconds that anyone could ever imagine in the history of imagination. The 400-page report suggested that future spacecraft should be designed so that when they do begin to break up in an accident, they experience a graceful degradation of vehicle systems and structure to enhance chances of crew survival. Because Hmm. their bodies fell 39 miles. While they were... We think just quote just unconscious, not dead yet. Or do you, or were we saying I, when they got exposed to the atmosphere, they just instantly died? I think that they probably suffocated. Okay. Um, so let's take a look at the lyrics to the song: "Boys and girls in cars, dogs and birds on lawns. From here, I can touch the sun. Yeah. Put your jackets on. I feel we're being born. The Tropic of Capricorn is below." Yeah. We stall above the pole. Still your face is young as we feel our weight return. Yeah. A trail of shooting stars. The horse is called a storm. Because the air contains the charge. Yeah. The radio is on and Houston knows the score. Can you feel it? We're almost home. Yeah. The crew compartment's breaking up. This is all I wanted to bring home. This is all I wanted to bring home to you. 
The seven crew members who died aboard this final mission were Rick Husband, Commander, William C. McCool, which is the best name ever, who's the pilot, Uh-oh. Michael P. Anderson. I had a boyfriend named James McCool. James McCool. Uh, what up? <laughs> Michael P. Anderson, who was the payload commander and mission specialist. David M. Brown, mission specialist. Kalpana Chawla, mission specialist. Laurel Clark, mission specialist. Elon Rom- Ramon, mission specialist. Seven asteroids orbiting the sun between Mars and Jupiter have been given the names of the seven Columbia crew mm. members that were lost. Okay. You can read the the all these reports online, the 276-page NASA sal- Navy salvage report and the NASA Sea uh, Columbia Accident Investigation Bureau report. Did you read them all? I did not. I did not read 676 <laughs> pages for this uh, for this episode. Although Dan, friend of the show, was like, "I have the report if you want it." I was like, "Yes, <laughs> but I only have two days." So disappointed in you. I know. So this is not the Commander Thinks Aloud is not the only pop cultural connection to the Columbia disaster. Um, astronaut and mission specialist Kalpana Chawla, who was one of the victims of the accident, was a huge fan of Deep Purple and exchanged emails with the band during the flight. Wow. She took three CDs into space with her, two of which were Deep Purple albums. Hmm. Both Deep Purple albums survived the destruction of the shuttle <gasps> and and the 39-mile plunge. What the? So this is like when we're saying like they all, they they almost could have lived. The CDs made sure. it. The CDs made it. The CDs made it. Guitarist Steve Morse of Deep Purple wrote an instrumental song called Contact Lost in response to the tragedy, and it was recorded on um, their 2003 album, Bananas. And it was dedicated to the astronauts who died in the disaster, and he donated all of his songwriting royalties, Steve Morse did, to the families of the lost astronauts. Contact Lost, Bananas 12. Yeah, I guess it's the 12th 12 track of Bananas. Oh, okay. Several songs in popular music give minor tribute, and some are dedicated. There's a uh, song by Eric Johnson, which is also instrumental, from the 2005 album Bloom, and it was written as a commemoration and tribute to the lives that were lost. Johnson said, I wanted to make it more of a positive message, a salute, a celebration, rather than just concentrating on a few moments of tragedy, but instead Mm -hmm. the bigger picture of these brave people's lives. So this is another like instrumental track. Oh, weird with what he just said. I mean, just saying like he wanted to make it like a a tribute, but it's yeah, it's weird that that... it's like (laughs) not that you need words, but it helps, right? (laughs) This feels. I don't like this. Sounds like Rack. Do you know that band? R A Q. Rack. Yeah. (laughs) 
you know. But uh, this also like does this feels like not really a tribute. <laughs> the Scottish band Runrig plays tribute pays tribute to astronaut Laura Clark on the 2016 album The Story. The final track, which is called Somewhere, ends with a recording of her voice. And Clark mm. was a Runrig fan, and her wake-up alarm on Columbia was one of Runrig's songs, Running to the Light. So, and she took one of their CDs into space with her, and when the shuttle exploded, the CD was found back on Earth and presented to the band by her family. Another CD? I don't. I don't know if this was this was a functional CD, but and so we'll listen to like the last little bit of the lyrics, and then there's like kind of some instrumental ambience, and then you can hear Laurel's voice. Somewhere in the dark, I'll find you. Somewhere in the light, I'll meet you there. Somewhere in the dark, I'll find you. Somewhere. I'd never heard her voice before. Yeah. And when it comes I mean, in, I'm like, I know. Yeah. It's really that is. Uh, and I think the whole song is is kind of dedicated to her because it says, "I'll meet you in the light," and um, the wake up alarm that she had was called "Running to the Light." Oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> okay, don't cry. Okay, we're gonna take a quick break. Weirdly, there was a lot of pop culture related to Columbia before it crashed. Also, uh, the 1982 Rush song, Countdown, is about the launch of STS-1, which is the first first mission that Columbia... Of Columbia. Of Columbia, yeah. All three members of the group Rush were present at the launch, and the credits of the album Signals, which is what the 
countdown is on is dedicated to astronauts young and crippen who were on the first flight crew and all the people of nasa for their inspiration and cooperation wow really sucking the nasa d i know and they're canadian too weird yeah crew members from mission 73 sts 73 ken bowersox katherine coleman Catherine Thornton, Frederick Leslie, and Albert Sacco were featured in the Home Improvement episode, Fear of Flying, from 1996. Um, I still have Home Improvement. Of course you did, JTT. Clearly. Yep. Uh-huh. I used to, like, draw the, like, Home Improvement. Like, in my, my doodles the, were, like, the always, house, like, the Home the, like, Improvement house. The, like, Waffle House logo. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and yeah, so I don't remember this episode though. Do you? No, not at all. And they showed scenes from the shuttle mission. I don't, yeah, I don't remember it at all. Um, Interesting. Homer Hickam's 1999 novel Back to the Moon is mostly set on the space shuttle Columbia and the structural differences between Columbia and other shuttles is like central to the plot of the story. Ah, interesting. it's, It's not about a disaster. However, in the 2000 finale, the year 2000 finale of the first season of The West Wing, which is called What Kind of a Day Has It Been? By the way, Aaron Sorkin always calls the last episode of something What Kind of a Day Has It Been? It's like one of his things. I don't know. Um, in the 2000 finale of the first season of The West Wing, Columbia does not land on schedule due to technical problems with the door mechanism and Toby Ziegler's brother is on board and the shuttle lands successfully by the end of the episode. But uh, this happened. There's like a big space shuttle fucking thing. It's in the sixth or so season of the West Wing uh, involving Toby's brother. Fans of the original Star Trek television series were, were they were largely responsible for NASA naming the first space shuttle Enterprise. Right? Ah! Name of the the shuttle in Star Trek. And in the television series, Star Trek Enterprise, which premiered in 2001, it was about like the early days of the Enterprise, the second ever vessel is revealed to be named the Columbia. Columbia. And in the season three episode E Squared, that's when they reveal that the first ever space shuttle was the enterprise second was columbia so it's like canon within the show and um in honor of the its destruction on february 1st 2003 the uniforms on the nx02 columbia the like space i don't know what it's fucking called starfleet the starfleet uniforms bear a patch depicting seven stars in honor of the seven astronauts who died in the accident Hmm. But we're talking about John Roderick and his song, above all the other ones. Why did he write a song about the Columbia disaster? So Because he's from Texas. No, he's from Seattle. You weren't paying attention Duh, at all. Duh, you already told me that. Yes. He's from Seattle. So this is John on Song Exploder. I had my pilot's license when I was 17, and my dad was a small plane pilot. It was one of the ways we bonded. It was in a small plane, you know, trying to make it over a mountain range. So I had a lot of experience in planes. I always love to fly. And when the nose comes off the ground, I always feel a charge. I didn't want to be the person that was anxious about flying. At that point in 2005, when he was writing the song, I guess we were still pretty close to 9-11. And the space shuttle disaster followed pretty close only years on that. But also there were those similar... 
those there were those smaller disaster crashes the alaska airlines crash that happened off the coast mm-hmm. of california where they lost their vertical stabilizer the jack screw one the pilots were aware that there was a problem everyone was aware that there was a problem and it just flew around and then flipped upside down and then plummeted into the ocean and then there was one off of long island where maybe the gas tank exploded and then there was that learjet that lost compression and everyone in it gone until they ran out of gas and all of the disasters stuck with me particularly ones where there was a sense that the people on board knew that they were lost but they were still alive the unfolding Mm. dawning realization like you know we're not getting out of this and what's your reaction in that situation do you scream you probably don't probably Mm. everyone is really calm in that situation and so i pictured the astronauts on re-entry they knew something was wrong with their ship they were worried about it but everyone had convinced them that it was going to be fine. And they're performing their duties and they're having the peak experience of their lives. And maybe one of the peak human experiences, like we're coming back to earth, having just looked down on earth and had that feeling like how beautiful that dumb little stuff is, the beauty of the mundane, like boys and girls in cars and dogs and birds on lawns, like seeing it. Maybe no one else would ever see it. Every once in a while, there's a name get, for that. Like, it's not the yeah, the beauty effect. and the small things. It's like I can't remember what it's called, but yeah, it's something yeah. that like only astronauts understand when they see Earth from up right. above. How the it, how insignificant they are. Yeah. Every once in a while, you get one as a songwriter where you sit down at your instrument, you have an idea, you have a first line, and you sing it, and you compose the entire song in an hour, and then you go, I don't know where that came from. The muse. Right. As the song unfolds, it starts to go sideways, and every successive verse, stuff is starting to break. Most, this is still John. Most of the Long Winter's songs are about relationships, and they are intentionally difficult to parse, but they're meant to communicate in an emotional language rather than a literal language. And so, as I was writing this song, as I made my way through the emotional story I was trying to tell, I did arrive at a place where I was like, I need to give a clue somewhere here. I was embarrassed to say the crew compartments breaking up because I felt like it was too literal. And so to say the crew compartments breaking up, the first time I went through it, I was like, meh, you know, but I needed it. And the thing was, you sing it once, you sing it the second time, everyone gets it. The third time they've heard it now. The fourth time they're like, okay, all right. Fifth, sixth time it starts to get annoying. And then a new kind of gravity enters the seventh time. You start to feel the emotion. And when I perform it live, if I'm not careful, I will start to cry. Mm. In the aftermath of the Columbia disaster, the space shuttle program was grounded until July of 2005, when space shuttle discovery was put into orbit. And we just hit 20 years as of tomorrow without a disaster like the one we saw in Columbia. In 2011, the space shuttle program was grounded and we are no longer doing manned missions. Although I think Biden has like restarted it or is planning on restarting. Aren't we like working on the Artemis missions right now? Yeah. So, but we haven't gone into, we haven't put people into. We haven't, but we're like testing dummies and stupid stuff like that. But I promised you two stories, not just one. Yes, you did. And, And in fact, two stories of disaster. 
As John said, most of the Long Winter songs are about relationships. So it's now time to talk about John's relationship with his daughter. Why? On January 2nd, 2021, nearly 18 years after the Columbia disaster and 13 years after the Commander Thinks Aloud, John Roderick posted a Twitter thread where he discussed preventing his nine-year-old daughter from eating until she learned to use a can opener to open a can of baked beans. What? He estimated that this took six hours. His comments were met with a large outcry on Twitter, and some users began derisively referring to John as Bean Dad. Bean Dad. Do you remember Bean Dad? I don't remember Bean Dad. I'm so excited about this. So this was, <laughs> as I mentioned last week, uh, the, the maple cocaine tweet from two years before this, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is that every day on Twitter, there is one main character and your job is to not be it. Sure. Yep. Um, so this is, the, the, the thread has since been deleted, but this is the entirety of the Bean Dad thread. This is from January 2nd, 2021. Ready? Oh, are you linking it to me or reading it to me? No, I'm going to read it to you. Okay. It's long. <laughs> so this is, and this is very much like pandemic, like this is all pandemic stuff. Yeah, I'm surprised you didn't show this to me. I'm sure I did. I, I guarantee you that I did. And it's just one of those, there's so many things, right? We're like <laughs> almost pandemic. ready to start the show at this point. <laughs> Um, okay. So this is John at John Roderick. So yesterday my daughter nine was hungry and I was doing a jigsaw puzzle. So I said over my shoulder, make some baked beans. She said, how? Like all kids do when they want you to do it. So I said, open a can, put it in a pot. She brought me the can opener and said, open it. How? With a can opener. I said, incredulously, she brought me the can opener and we both stared at it. I realized I'd never taught her how to use it. Most cans now have pull tops. I felt like a dope. What kind of apocalypse father doesn't teach his kid how to use a manual can opener? (laughs) So I said, how do you think this works? She studied it and applied it to the top of the can sideways. She struggled for a while and with a big dramatic sigh, she said, will you please open the can? Apocalypse dad was overjoyed. A teaching moment (laughs) just dropped in my lap. I said, the little device is designed to do one thing, open cans, study the parts, study the can, figure out what the can opener inventor was thinking when they tried to solve the problem. The can opener is also a bottle opener, but I explained that part wasn't relevant. I went back to my, <laughs> I went back to my jigsaw puzzle, and she was next to me grunting and groaning, trying to get the thing. I should say that spatial orientation, process visualization, and order of operations are not things that she intuits. I knew that this would be a challenge, but it was a rainy weekend. Eventually, she collapsed in a frustrated heap. I said, explain the parts. She said, the little wheel is meant to cut, and the gears turn the wheel when you spin the handle. And the other wheel looks like a gear, but isn't. She couldn't figure out the clamping step, a key element. (laughs) I said, the tool is made to be pleasing, but it doesn't have any superfluous qualities. Everything that moves does so for a reason. She said, I hate you. (laughs) I'm sure she believes that she does. I said, you understand everything except how the tool addresses the can. She sighed. 
At this point, she said, I don't want baked beans and marched off. Apocalypse Dad went to f- went into full the road mode. Sweetheart, neither of us will eat another bite today until we get this can of beans. No. <laughs> she screamed, ah, like Lucy Van Pelt, and she read a book for a while. Soon, she was back at the can. The top was all dented now. The lip of the can practically serrated from failed attempts. We studied the tool some more. She really wanted to be oriented up and down or across the top of the can. The sideways orientation is very counterintuitive. She was, she was fixated on, orient, on orienting the tool in a few configurations and couldn't imagine other possibilities. I compared the can opener to other tools. By now, we were working on anger management and perseverance, too. (laughs) She suggested she open the can with a hammer. There were tears. I told her stories of some great cans that I opened over the years. She rolled her eyes. We talked about the industrial design and what a funny little device the opener is. I showed her how to open cans with a buck knife. I rhapsodized about cold SpaghettiOs straight from the can. Eventually, she had it all figured out. She had the placement of the tool. She could turn the handle, and the can would spin. We were down on the floor by this point, but the kathunk of puncturing the lid still eluded us. We'd been at it for six hours on and off. We were hungry. I'd been tempted many times along the way to guide her hand. I wanted her to experience the magnificence of the can opener so much. I couldn't stand the suspense. Neither of us likes baked beans that much. The cupboards are bare, (laughs) so it seems like a paltry reward for this work. I'd forgotten how finicky the tool really is, particularly when it comes to the puncture. She had it all lined up, but the cutting wheel's a little wobbly by design, and so you really have to get on top to clamp it down. You know the feeling. You can misfire the damn thing. Finally, she squeezed down on it, and although it was a misfire, a light went off in her head. Many times throughout the day, she'd yell at me, My brain is fuzzy. I can't think of anything to try. And I'd say, when your brain doesn't work, trust your hands. She felt the tool click over the lip of the can. I saw it in her hands. By that point, she developed a little ritual of addressing the tool to the can, starting with it on the vertical axis and then rotating it to the horizontal while clamping down in a single motion, a choreography. She looked at me expectantly. After six hours of trying, you don't want to express too much hope. Was this another (laughs) blind alley? The can had been through hell, label ripped off, dented, sharpened, burred, a veteran of a thousand psychic wars. She knew, though. She, was, she set up again, carefully, and brought the swing away to bear on the can of S&W baked beans with the meticulousness of Roger Moore extracting a detonator from an ICBM in The Spy Who Loved Me. A soft pop resounded in the room, so different from all the other sounds we'd made. She didn't look up. She knew the action. A little baked bean sauce appeared. She savored each twist until the lid, as I hoped it would, rewarded her by standing perfectly at attention, saluting her effort and ingenuity. She was elated and carried it to the kitchen with both hands. She knew that this was a commonplace task and a common tool, but also that this was serious business. She knows her dad and the stock I put in these things. A more mechanically inclined kid may have figured it out in minutes. She factored the, she factored the scale, but was rightfully proud. I'm proud of her, too. I know I'm infuriating. I know that this is parenting theater in some ways. I suffer from a lack of perseverance myself and all parents throughout history. 
And like all parents throughout history, I'm trying to correct my own mistakes in the way I educate my child. She sees through this. The swing away can opener is a little voodoo doll for us now. It will reappear as an allegory many more times in her life, you can be sure. She knows this too. But this, this is an allegory of triumph. I wish I had more of those for myself. I wish I had more stories like this. The only problem is now she wants to open every fucking can in the house. Jesus! Right. So... I, like many people, saw this as it was like unfolding or like kind of as like right after it was unfolding. And everyone, you know, he's the main character of the internet for the day, Bean Dad, right? Not everyone was charmed by this. Tell me. So some folks online took the story and made it about the patriarchy, white culture, abuse culture, diet culture. And it's not not about those things, right? Like, this is a white man withholding food from a little girl, which is, like, not ideal. She's nine. Um, But the internet took any excuse to dunk on John Roderick. Child Protective Services was called. Oh, my God. So I truly think COVID was a huge contributing factor to this, not only because of the bean saga itself and he has to like he can't like take his daughter outside or whatever but also in the fallout because no one had anything to fucking do else to do yeah yeah roderick eventually responded to the backlash he said the only thing people are touchier about than parenting style is dog ownership and then he attempted a few more follow-up tweets defending his parenting decisions as well as his choice to share it with the public before just deleting his twitter account entirely Oh, my God. Of course, deleting the account only fueled the backlash fire. One Twitter user wrote, wow, imagine going out known as Bean Dad. (laughs) I have a few notes. About Bean Dad? Yeah. Yeah. You just, you could just not do it. Like, you don't have to. I'm actually not that sensitive to it. Like. I'm not super sensitive to it either. parents were no picnic. Not defending anyone. I'm also not a parent, but I'm like. And I'm extremely sensitive to diet culture, and we're going to talk probably a lot about that in the coming week. But this isn't that. It's And it's not like you better eat every last morsel on your plate until you throw up. Right. It's teaching. But, but, but what kid hasn't seen someone use a can opener? This is a class story. This is a story of a rich dad whose kid has never seen a I, fucking can of food. I don't know about that. I don't know how rich this guy is. I don't know if he's like, he's like never see a can opener rich, but she's nine. She may have seen it and not like registered it. I can't um, remember a time where I didn't know how a can opener worked. Sure. I think I but, just saw my parents opening cans of green beans. But okay. So, okay. Sure. Yes. So I, this is not my educational style. I'm like a learn then do kind of guy. Mm-hmm. The thing that people were responding to were that was like six hours. We're not going to eat anything until you open this can. You know, her getting frustrated and him kind of delighting in it, which is all details of the story that like maybe a little exaggerated for effect. Yes, it did seem a bit self indulgent. By the end, I was like, just shut the fuck up. Yeah, shut the fuck up, Bean Dad. Yeah. <laughs> um. So. This is from the reason dot from sorry. This is from reason.com, which is a site with the subhead free minds and free markets. So do with that what you will. <laughs> because this became a political thing, 
right? Oversensitive, woke culture, and this dad did nothing wrong. So uh, this is a quote from Reason.com. In Roderick on the Line, his weekly podcast with Merlin Mann, John Roderick said, a dozen people reported me to CPS, and they were obligated to come interview my family and interrogate my daughter. Oh, my God. Thankfully, the CPS visit went well. They were wonderful, said Roderick, and they were just doing their jobs. Apparently, one investigator spoke to Roderick's daughter for about an hour, privately asking questions like, what do you like about your dad? And what do you not like about your dad? Roderick's daughter told him about this afterwards. Turns out that she doesn't like the fact that he gets tired of playing Legos faster than she does. Within a couple days, Roderick publicly apologized for being being dad. I'm sorry that I'm being dad. (laughs) So this is from NBC News. This made it to NBC News. We're like storming the Capitol right now. And this is what we're paying attention to. This is from NBC News. John Roderick, a musician, podcaster, and lead singer of the band The Long Winters, who was nicknamed Bean Dad after a Twitter thread about his daughter struggling to use a can opener went viral, (laughs) apologized Tuesday on his website. In the thread, Roderick said that he let his daughter struggle for hours to open a can of beans without helping, only offering vague hints as she tried to teach herself how to use the can opener. After the the thread went viral, Roderick initially insulted critics who suggested that he was being a bad parent but as the scrutiny intensified roderick deactivated his twitter accounts he did so in a panic he wrote at the top of the apology this is his apology i have to i had to reflect on what i'd done and the hurt i'd caused and my mind was clouded by an unprecedented flow of new information i want to acknowledge and make amends for the injuries i caused I have many things to atone for. <laughs> My parenting stories and sensitivity is just one of them. I want to confront them directly. My story about my daughter and the can of beans was poorly told i didn't share how much laughing we were doing how we had a bowl of pistachios between us all day as we worked on the problem or that we'd both had a full breakfast together only a few hours before her mother was in the room with us all day and alternately laughing at us and telling us to be quiet as she worked on her laptop this is it back to nbc Some likened the thread to abuse that they'd experienced as children at the hands of their parents, while others still worried that Roderick could be setting his daughter up to have a difficult relationship with food. Back to Roderick. I was ignorant. I'm I'm I agree with you. I was ignorant and sensitive to the messages that my pedant dad comedic persona was indistinguishable from how abusive dads act, talk and think. I reread the story and saw clearly that I had framed it so poorly and insensitively. Bean Dad, full of braggadocio and dickhead swagger, was hurting people. I'd conjured an abusive parent that many people recognized from real life. True. That's exactly what he did. He was just a little self inflated telling the story. He left out some details to make it seem what he thought was funnier, and people were like, yeah. actually, mm, it's not very funny. Exactly. He said that he'd wish that abusive parents didn't exist and no one should be raised by a person who, person who tortured them physically or emotionally. Quote, well, I am deeply sorry for having participated. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm deeply sorry for having precipitated more hurt in the world for having prolonged or exacerbated it by fighting back and being flippant when confronted and for taking my Twitter feed offline yesterday instead of facing the music. He made a mistake. He made a mistake. 
And it seems like you want to give John the benefit of the doubt. I kind of which do is rare too, for me. Which is rare for I'm you. I'm not usually like the person that's giving the guy the benefit of the doubt. I agree. But listen, could a guy <laughs> who's made such beautiful, such a beautiful and moving tribute that is deeply humanist be capable of child abuse or other forms of treachery? Yes, of course. <laughs> Did you freeze? No. <laughs> Amidst the backlash and jokes about Roderick's story, some users pointed out problematic tweets he had made in the past. Oh, shit. User at very Heath Miller tweeted some screenshots of some tweets, which included Roderick saying to podcast host Dave Anthony, I'm going to rape you the next time I see you. Bad rape, not funny rape. What? See? So he, he, now you've ruined it forever. I'm never going to give another guy the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> So on July 10th, 2012, he tells Dave Anthony he's going to rape him next time he sees him. Bad rape, not funny rape. Um, on May 10th, thing. yeah, on May 10th, 2013, he says to someone at who's the Twitter handle at important Megan, maybe the half white of you that went to law school can get the half black out of jail on some boohoo technicality. What? So so important Megan replies and says, it sucks when people get off on a technicality. Wah, your Fourth Amendment rights were violated. And I think she's just like firing back at this person, Margaret, um, Megan Hatcher Mays, important Megan. And he says, the Fourth Amendment has been perverted by activist Jew mud people apologists. Jew mud people apologists. Yeah. That's this is hard funny. for me. Like specifically, a guy, a guy who wrote one of my favorite songs ever yeah. is like, "You're a mud person." <laughs> um, and then later he says, "My armored car arrived and surprised, full of Jew lawyers, were taking guns, taxing, and then suing the survivors." This is like when I found out about Matt Taibbi's past. Yeah, right. Matt Taibbi, <laughs> not great. <laughs> but. You were my, ah, I so, want to be just like you. It's not just John that gets caught up in the in the fray. So John Roderick had his song as the title song for the very popular podcast, My Brother, My Brother and Me. Have you heard of My Brother, My Brother and Me? Very, very popular. He had the theme song for that? He had the theme song for it. And so they Like he parted. sang it, wrote it? Yeah, he, it was like one of his songs. They were friends with him. Okay. okay. Um, so mm-hmm. they parted ways with him. And former Jeopardy champion Ken Jennings, who, who was hosting, co-hosting a podcast called Omnibus with John Roderick, he stepped in to defend Roderick amidst the controversy. And, and he wrote this. Ken, first of all, Ken, what are you doing? <laughs> Jennings wrote, if this reassures anyone, I personally know John to be A a loving and attentive dad who B tells heightened for effect stories about his own irascibility on like 10 podcasts a week. This site is so dumb. Then when Ken Jennings was confronted by the anti-Semitic tweets, Jennings said that John Roderick could not be anti-Semitic because on their podcast, quote, Roderick is always the pro Israel one. What guys, (laughs) what the fuck are you doing? Just stop talking. Just stop talking. 
you don't have to tweet. They don't, they think they're, they are so self-inflated that they think they do have to speak. And people are, people wonder why Ken Jennings has to share the Jeopardy hosting duties with other hosts. This is pointed to the reason is why is because he was in line to take over for Alex trebek's retirement and death to cancer and uh this happened like right around that time and they're like well great so that's why my Bialik also hosts the show so you can you can do it but just not the whole thing yeah basically that's no they have like an understudy so back to (laughs) back to nbc news as for the this is Roderick's Roderick's apology as for the many racist, anti-Semitic, hurtful, and slur-filled tweets from my early days on Twitter, I can only say this. All of those tweets were intended to be ironic, sarcastic. Ugh. He added that he thought being an ally to marginalized communities meant taking the slurs out of the oppressors, taking the slurs of the oppressors and flipping them to mock racism, sexism, homophobia, homophobia and bigotry. Was that what he was doing? Because I missed it. So, like, I under so like here's the thing, right? Like, I I understand that point of view, though I don't really super agree with it. I think like you should be allowed, like like people should kind of that that should be a two way street that you are listening more than talking. But like, I don't think that that's what these tweets are. I don't know. Maybe who who, who the fuck knows? Roderick wrote that he was humiliated. Quote, by my incredibly insensitive use of the language of sexual assault in casual banter. It was a lazy and damaging ideology that I continued to believe long past the point I should have known better. That because I was a hipster intellectual from a diverse community, it was okay for me to joke and deploy slurs in that context. And it was not. Rape is not a slur. And it's a terrifying, atrocious act of violence. I think it's like he's conflating like the racial slurs he does, the anti-Semitic slurs, the homophobic slurs. No, I also, get it, but like, I'm just pulling jokes. this one out because sure. no, you're no rapes you're, super you're hilarious. I have never heard a rape joke fly. that hasn't been funny. Like you think you're fucking Eminem? No. There are a ton of diverse viewpoints on the Bean Dad Bean Dad saga. He did nothing wrong. It's just cancel culture run amok. So I think it's important to note that Roderick's not entitled to fame and fandom and it's people choosing whether they want to buy his music or listen to his podcast and like that's their right. So like that's just capitalism. Sure. Um, but I do also do think that there's this sort of blood in the water thing of acting in bad faith to some of these stories, especially like was Bean Dad so egregious that that it warranted going through his old tweets and being like, you said some fucked up shit 10 years ago. Mm. I'm not a parent. I can't say. It's a good question. Yeah. I mean, I guess if you look, anything you put on the internet is subject to scrutiny. Correct. That's the moral of the story. And everything that exists on the internet today is subject to bad faith arguments, right? People will, uh, people will take anything to any opportunity to misinterpret something you say and make it about them and a personal attack and everything else. Right. Um, these people need to go touch grass. They couldn't cause they were locked in their homes for a year. And so it got pretty bad. Um, I don't think that if being dad happened today, it would be the same outcome. Cause people are like mostly back to their lives. Um, 
And it's yeah. like not, I was on board with being dad, but yeah, rape it's jokes, not, racism, anti-Semitism, not cool. Sorry, he lost me too. <laughs> uh, what? How brave I'm being. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that the, because we all live our lives in public now, there is like there is a a much higher tolerance for saying stupid shit and a much lower tolerance for say- we 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 hold our politicians to lower standards and our citizens to higher standards it's, it's very weird, weird right yeah maybe he's an edge lord maybe he's the next hitler maybe his daughter should have been taken away but one thing i want to point out which is one of the things i always like to focus on in this show is that great artists are capable of doing horrible things and horrible people are capable of making great art and those two things don't have to be reliant on each other but there might be a correlation between getting rewarded for creatively pushing boundaries and then one day you lose all sense of what boundaries you shouldn't push like not feeding your nine-year-old daughter how deep of you thank you so what are we going out on this week Lindsay? (laughs) This week, we're going out on the Bean Song. I literally looked if there was a Bean Song, and I couldn't find one. <laughs> Damn it. So we're going to go out on the Rush Song Countdown from 1982, and this is the song written about the first Columbia shuttle launch in 1981. Not to be confused with the final countdown. No. <laughs> not, right. not, indeed not. Where can people find us on the internet, Lindsay? Find us on the internet at Lyrics for Lunch on Instagram and Twitter. If you're listening to us on your podcatcher apps, check out our YouTube channel. We're at Podcasts on Vivo. If you're listening, if you're watching us on YouTube on Podcasts on Vivo, check out our subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It's great. It's the same show, but in your car. Give us a thumbs up. Tell your friends. Tell your enemies. And tell your parents. Week. Tell your parents. I don't know. If, I don't know if parents will like the show. Um, and <laughs> tune in next week when we do this all over again with a brand new song. You, you, you're going to tell us or no? It's guaranteed to make you hate rich men and remind women how hungry they are. What a change for us! <laughs> what a change! So until <laughs> next time, I'm Aviv Rubenstein. I'm Lindsay Tucker. Saying, cool don't beans. tweet.